Should social media censor free speech? Welcome to Tech First with John Katsir. So something fairly unprecedented happened this week. You probably know about it. Everybody's heard about it. Facebook and Twitter both blocked a New York Post story. Now, whatever you think about that particular story, and we're obviously talking about the Hunter Biden laptop story from Rudy Giuliani. I think it's pretty flimsy, but whatever you think about it, blocking it almost immediately, that's pretty shocking, right? I mean, that's pretty hardcore. It's not like independent third-party fact checkers looked at that and said, hey, that's false and you should block it. But there's potentially some reasons for why they did that. How should social media deal with controversial subjects or false information? Today, we're discussing this with Bill Ottman, who's the founder and CEO of the open source social network, Minds.com. Welcome, Bill. Hey, thanks for having me, John. Bill, let's just dive into the most topical thing right here. We're going to get into all these things, right? Like what should social networks do? Should there be censorship? Should there be no censorship? Uh, what does free speech look like? All that other stuff, right? But with the New York Post story, in your opinion, what should have happened? I do not think that it should have been taken down. And and I think that even Dorsey doesn't think it should be taken down. I mean, he made statements that it was unacceptable. Yes. So, you know, certainly and Jack not- Jack Dorsey, of course, is the CEO of Twitter. Right. And so, because that policy that they- had, which they have already changed about hacked information, that would essentially apply to like a significant percentage of journalism <laughs> if, they, if they were to not allow that type of sourced information to be published through a news website on the platform. So it's really just an impossible standard to uphold. And yeah. It, it is really interesting because obviously there's been a huge struggle. You, you could say over the past few years, but particularly in the last maybe 12 months, six months, and getting more and more to the forefront as the U.S. election comes closer and closer, there's been this huge struggle of fake news. What is fake news? Is fake news everything I disagree with? <laughs> it's fake news right. something verifiably false. Uh, what is it and how should the social media platforms deal with it? If you look at controversial political subjects, how, in your opinion, should social media treat them? I think that we need to look at decentralized reputation scores and, and trust scores, and, and we can build trust around certain users and content with certain methodologies. But I mean, misinformation could be, you know, you could make a mistake. Yes. You could be wrong. You could make a harmless mistake or it could be a very harmful mistake, but it could be something that you don't intend to do. And so should you be banned from the, the platform or should your content be banned for the, you know, misinformation. Once you go down that rabbit hole, you are opening yourself up to a whole world of Im impossible standard. So I think that, you know, drawing the line where at least where we draw the line and we encourage other platforms to draw the line is is around the first amendment and with certain other edge cases can you go into that a little more detail what do you mean there sure so you know no one really knows what the policy is on facebook and twitter <laughs> and youtube <laughs> i mean for instance on twitter there's certain explicit content that you can find yep for sure like very much so. 
and but certain other stuff is not okay and there's not a consistent clear policy that people can cling on to and that that's the same on all the platforms and even if there is a consistent and clear policy though they can't really seem to enforce that really because if you look at I think it was about three weeks ago or something like that. Uh, maybe it was actually when Donald Trump got COVID and people were posting uh, some things, hey, I hope he dies or something like that, right? And Twitter banned that because that was essentially violent speech. That was, you can't hope right. that somebody's going to die. And then lots of people came out of the woodwork and said, well, interesting. I didn't know you had this policy because people have told me that they wished I had died, you know, and right. they might be activists. They might be women. They might be other minorities or something, whatever the case might be. And they came out and, and, and said, what happened here? Why did you not apply it earlier? Yep. And then, then there are cases where people say, oh, I want to kill you. It's, you know, sarcastic or, or it's not serious. And, you know, when the AI is detecting all the language and processing everything, you know, it's not smart enough to understand context fully mm -hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of reliance is, is on this AI and machine learning. And in some cases, they're just allowing those tools to run the show and then they do damage control afterwards. So, and that is dangerous. There's going to be too much collateral damage. Yeah. I, I agree with you on that. Uh, Facebook had an issue on that. I wrote a story for Forbes on that about, I would say about four months ago and it was going COVID was, was pretty new still maybe mm -hmm. five months ago in that case, maybe even more. How long have we been in COVID? It feels like it's been forever. And, uh, and they were banning anything that mentioned COVID or coronavirus because they were trying to ban some fake news and the right. AI just got out of control. Right. So there's an argument to be made that Facebook, Twitter, Minds, other social networks are the new public square. They are the new public square. They're where we have our conversations. They're where we talk to friends, family, strangers. Mm -hmm. and, and if you ban speech there, you're actually infringing on free speech generally. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, they're private corporations and by law, private corporations can do public corporations in this case can do what they wish and have their own regulations. Where do you fall on that? The thing that bothers me the most about those in particular and the other kind of fang companies is that it feels like they brought everyone in under this idea of free expression. And then over the last number of years, they've, they've drastically changed the policies. So people who spent many years building up a following, you know, thinking that one thing was okay, then suddenly, you know, their million followers, you know, the platforms don't really care. And so it's similar to how Facebook brought in the uh, restrictive algorithms in the newsfeed and, and cranked down the organic reach. To me, that, well, that's more of a soft form of censorship because yeah. you know you have got a hundred thousand followers, but you're only reaching four percent of them. Yes, if you're four percent, that's high. <laughs> that's high. Yeah, I know it's probably like one now, and we have no idea what's going on. And everyone put so much energy into building up these pages, and then they really just changed the game. Yeah, and if you know Twitter, their slogan was the free speech wing of the free speech party. I mean, the, these are important words. And I think that companies obviously should have 
to have whatever content policy they want. I don't think that every social network, you know, if you're some sort of like a religious social network or whatever social, what you're a phishing social network and you, you know, don't want this content, like you should have the ability to impose mission. But when you market in that way and become, you know, a multi-billion user network, I think that that's a, a little bit of a different scenario. Now we take sort of a different perspective, which we can get into, but I'll, I'll stop there. It is interesting, right? I mean, you have a cats only social network, no dogs allowed, <laughs> no post about dogs or whatever as possible. We will get into what you do on minds.com and how that works as well. There is, of course, also the yelling fire in a theater argument, right? There's the argument that you can't just say everything or anything at any time. There are limits to free speech. Does that apply to social media? Because one of the things that we see with social media is with virality. What I said to you in the public square 20 years ago stayed there. Those words mm -hmm. fell to the ground and who knew, right? Now, some random thing that I tweet you could be horrifically offensive and get retweeted 5 million times and it's a big deal. It's viral. And the same can happen with false information. How do we bridge that gap? Yeah, I mean, sometimes certain things are worth sharing that are wrong. You know, you want to provide the, con especially if it's done within the context of, you know, you share it with context, like why you think this is so stupid. Yes. Um, to say that, you know, stupid ideas don't deserve to exist is just nothing in history shows that getting rid and censoring stupid ideas is actually a productive solution. Well, um, my stupid idea is your genius plan, right? So uh, who knows? <laughs> right, right. And you look, I think education for users on how to research, how to understand context, how to like, that's what we really need to be focusing on because it's a losing battle to expect that every single piece of content uploaded to, you know, social networks with hundreds of millions or billions of users is going to be able to get fully vetted. And that's not even including comedy, which is intentionally uh -huh. wrong sometime. And it's used as, you know, in some cases, almost a healing mechanism for people to deal with really problematic issues. So there's, the, there's the realm of serious content. And then there's the realm of, I mean, Trump retweeted a Babylon B article unironically. Yes. To, like yes. two days ago. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's I unbelievable. Know. Uh, that has happened before. I'm pretty sure in Pakistan or India, there have been government officials have retweeted the onion stories, not realizing that they were satire. And uh, I know, that's like the golden test. If you're a good satire site. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, but you, what you were saying there is you were saying that there's no way that at scale social media networks can know what is appropriate, what is inappropriate, what works, what doesn't work when hundreds of millions, in fact, billions, as you said, 
are sharing, are tweeting, whatever. You'll get a kick out of this one. I don't know if you saw this, but it was, uh, I think earlier this week, some farmers in Canada, East Coast Canada, got their pictures of onions flagged by Facebook and removed because they were sexual in nature. Mm. <laughs> so, yep. Some algorithm saw something mm. and banned them. It's really interesting you bring that up. I was talking to the creator of this AI framework, uh, NSFWJS, and it's sort of, it's like a TensorFlow tool, which can detect explicit imagery and it's open source. So we're actually considering leveraging some of those tools. And he was saying that onions are, are problematic. Really? And, and yeah, because there's sort of a, a spatial relationship between them and, you know, maybe a certain body part. Um, yes. But... Yeah, I mean, I think that there should be tools for users to opt into a spectrum of different content policies. So, you know, certain people may just have no interest in in seeing satire, or maybe they have no interest in seeing X, Y, and Z, other type of content. And I do think it's the job of social networks to make it very clear to you as a user how to control your experience and giving you as many possible tools to control your experience as they can. And additionally, there's something that we're working on, sort of a content prediction and quality tool where you can actually vet slash bet on the future quality and relevancy of content within a certain category. And yes. people can actually build up reputation within certain categories and content can build up reputation within certain categories, not just likes and, you know, the problem with just going off likes is that it's so ripe for manipulation. Mm -hmm. And when the trendings are being based on that sort of shallow metric, it makes them subject to just being owned and gamed. That's a good point. And let's, that brings up the topic of algorithms and, and algorithms are, are something that, I mean, nobody outside of computer science or mathematics even thought of a decade ago, two decades, three decades ago, but algorithms govern a lot of what we see as increasingly our reality and our understanding of reality is formed by the digital platforms that we use, where we consume information, where we create information, the algorithms that govern what's visible, what we see, what the platform thinks we'll like, what the platform thinks we won't like, what will keep us on the platform, maybe clicking more, maybe watching yep. another ad or something like that, control us in a large extent. And that becomes dangerous, right? So you mentioned controlling your experience and absolutely you kind of want everybody to be able to control their experience. But if you map that to a real world scenario where I met you in that theoretical public square, you know, the guy on the pulpit yelling that hell is coming tomorrow or something like that, that happens. It impinges on my reality. And there's some serendipity sometimes to that and there's some good information that comes in that punctures my reality bubble mm. and comes inside so there's some value there Absolutely. i'd love for you to comment on that and then we'll go a little That's farther on I mean, algorithms if that guy was on twitter you know he might get banned for misinformation <laughs> yes he might <laughs> so yeah absolutely i mean that is an echo chamber breaker 
it, it pierces your filter bubble because you're walking down the street, you know, you got your headphones in, you're in your, your experience. And then the guy is like throwing pamphlets in your face and, and, you know, talking about 2012 or, <laughs> well, now it's going to be 2045. Yes. Um, so the algorithms to me should by default be reverse chronological because that is what you decided as a user that you want to see. Now, how, giving people the ability to opt in to different types of algorithms, fine. You know, Twitter basically puts you back to the algorithmic feed. You can't stay on the chronological one. There's that little icon on the top. And every time you click it, every time you log in, you have to put it back if you want reverse chronological. They won't let you just keep it. And um, it's not to say that, I mean, algorithms are math, so it's not like algorithms are bad, but they 100% need to be open source because we have no idea what they're doing, who they're favoring, who they're punishing, who they're, you know, who's getting throttled. That type of information is really important for the community to understand the software that they're interfacing with. I like what you said there, that algorithms need to be open source. I'm, I'm currently writing a science fiction book, which is future news. So in my day job, <laughs> I write today's news. For fun, I'm writing future news and insights from the future. And one of the things that I wrote in there is, so it's a, a news story from five, seven years in the future, where there's a movement that all algorithms must be open source, must be okay. visible, so that you know why Facebook showed you this post. And I, that's one thing that I, I was going to ask you as well. Like, should everything that you see that's governed by an algorithm have metadata with it such that you can see, why did I see this ad? Why mm. did I see this post? Okay. And then Facebook can say, well, you saw that post because you've shown a predilection in the past to click on information from that source or you're interested in that topic or whatever. But we should know that. And we should know, as you mentioned, those algorithms, like I called it tweet rank probably about seven years ago or something like that when I was fed up with the chronological stream and I was getting too much garbage and I was saying Twitter should do something called like tweet rank, you know, which is sort of like uh, page rank, which Google did, of mm -hmm. course, right? Which pages are the best and surface those in search. And I want to see the best tweets. Well, that is good. But what don't we see when that happens? Right. That's the challenge. Yeah. Yeah, that's why you want both options. You want to be able to toggle back and forth and sit on the setting that you're feeling at a particular moment in time. It shouldn't be either or scenario. And, you know, I, I really like the idea of allowing, you know, sort of a, a hover over where you can see the metadata, you know, in Facebook and uh, in Google's case, we'd be like, well, you know, you were in another browser tab or <laughs> we're not on our site, but you're on another browser tab and app because pulling you around everywhere you're going in your browser. And so <laughs> it would be pretty extensive. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, you searched for that. <laughs> and there you go. That is that is pretty interesting. Uh, we also see that platforms depress stuff. They Whether that's shadow banning of individuals or whether that's simply, certainly LinkedIn and Facebook, and I believe Twitter as well, make things 
it's harder to make things go viral when they take people off the platform. If there's a link in there, uh, you put a YouTube video right. in Facebook or whatever the case, anything that takes people away from the platform, they don't like, and they mm -hmm. don't show to as many people. And I would just like to know that. I would just like them to admit that and to see in pseudocode or plain English as much as possible what the algorithm is doing and why it's doing what it's doing. Yeah, they make these vague blog posts where they say, oh, you know, we're going to be rewarding native video a little bit more, but they don't really tell you what's going on. And it's sort of, you know, their argument would be, oh, well, you know, we have to against games and we just want to improve the quality of the content in your feed. <laughs> it's just the same thing over and over again. But Again, you know, to, our to economic imperative has no bearing on our decisions of what we do in our algorithm right. at all. <laughs> no, nope, no, nope, money is not a factor. Again, Jack Dorsey made a statement the other day, like, oh, how great would it be if we opened up all of our algorithms? And it's just like, and it's the same thing when Zuckerberg talks about how he's, you know, doing his year long project about decentralization and, and crypto. And it's like, okay. So great. You're sort of half-hearted talking about these issues because you know it's where things are going, but you're totally unwilling to make the changes where it counts on your facing app right now. Mm -hmm. you're, it's like, we're going to do decentralization and, and blockchain, but it's going to be mostly proprietary. And you know we're going to try to control the whole thing. And it's a mystery because I think that they're well aware. I mean, look at all the stuff going on with Bitcoin and, you know, Square just bought 50 million of Bitcoin. Like those people know where things are moving, but it feels like they're clinging to control while they can because they know that where things are going is in much more of an open source decentralized hmm. uh, direction. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that's a good segue because I want to talk about minds.com. So I first heard about it probably maybe three weeks ago or something like that. Uh, created an account on there just to play around. Um, I didn't have a chance to chat with you back then. Came up uh, yesterday. So we set this up and you've created a different kind of social network. It's open source. Talk a little bit about what you've created there and what you're trying to do. Yeah, so Minds is a open source, community-owned social network as well. We actually have over 1,500 uh, community sh shareholders because we did an equity crowdfunding round a few years back, and that actually converted into stock when we did our series a and we're actually gearing up for a reg a plus to bring even more of the community into the early stage ownership structure that's a key element and then obviously flipping everything about mainstream social on its head so being super focused with encryption and decentralizing the infrastructure as much as possible where it makes sense, you know, fully decentralized, everything isn't fully possible with a, a good UX, but certainly moving in that direction. And like, we just launched a, a prototype of a tool where you can optionally post to what's called the permaweb, which mm -hmm. is through the Rweave network. And that is a fully decentralized data and content storage solution. 
And so that's an optional feature for people. And so it, it's much more of a resilient system where, okay, yeah, we'll publish to S3 and, you know, we use AWS, but having this backup is totally essential. And there's really cool projects like IPFS and other distributed systems that are just increasingly going to give users more control and be really valuable. So, so that's the technology side to a large extent of what you're doing. What are you trying to do in terms of how somebody feels when they're using the service? What are you trying to do in terms of how information travels on the service mm-hmm. and what it just feels like to be a member there? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's the most important thing. And when we originally launched our mobile apps back in 2015, we were so disillusioned from the strangling organic reach on Facebook because we actually had like millions of followers over there and, and drove a bunch of traffic for a long time. But then it almost became a waste of time. And we were like, cannot rely on this even a little bit for the future. It's only or worse. And so we built this virtual currency reward system where you earn tokens for your contributions to the network every day. And one token is worth a thousand impressions. So you can earn these tokens and then boost your posts for more exposure because, you know, they're strangling everyone. We want to help creators be seen and get exposure. And it's really been sort of a magical thing, even despite being, you know, a few million users, a tiny fraction of the size Many small to medium-sized creators get better reach on mines using the boost tool and, wow. and earning the tokens than they do on Twitter. I mean, they'll be on Twitter for 10 years and still be getting like 10 likes. So, you know, the, the mass over there is only relevant to you if you can reach those people. Now, I think that we've become much more focused on quality of content. And like I mentioned earlier with some of the prediction tools and vetting tools and moving the algorithms towards more of a a quality centric world as opposed to just raw engagement. But I still think raw engagement feeds are worthwhile to be able to have access to. So again, Mm -hmm. the optionality that's really important. But I mean, we take the First Amendment approach because based on the research that we have compiled, looking at studies from nature and you know many different universities that talk about how censorship increases violence, actually, and increases polarization. Uh, I'll just read you one quote from this Nature publication. Our mathematical model predicts that policing within a single platform such as Facebook can make matters worse and will eventually generate global dark pools in which online hate will flourish. And so this is what study after study shows, is that even if it's with good intention, we I think we all want less hate speech. We all want to have safe communities, but we really have to ask ourselves what's happening with the networks on the internet when the censorship policies are brought into full steam on the largest communications platform in the world. And there's a growing body of evidence that what is happening, that, that the content policies on the big networks are fueling the cultural divide and a lot of the polarization and civil unrest. So it's counterintuitive, but that's why we brought on our new advisor, Daryl Davis, who's a de-radicalization and race relations expert. He's 
personally de-radicalized members of the KKK as a black man. I mean, all right, let me ask you a question. Imagine if Facebook, what do you think would happen if the 20,000 moderators on Facebook were all mental health workers and counselors and people who are actually engaging, as long as it's not illegal, like true harassment, like that stuff has to go. But for the edge cases, these people who are like disturbed people, Mm -hmm. what would happen if we had 20,000 people who were productively engaging them? Interesting. I don't know. I do know that there are some people who are trolls who seem to lack empathy and seem to lack the ability to understand how others feel with what they say and how they treat them. And that is probably due to psychological issues. And perhaps there's people who understand those better and can help treat those. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's a long-term project. You know, in Daryl's case, many of the people that he got to turn over their robes, you know, it was multi-year engagement of communication. And that's what it's going to take. And people like Dia Khan have, have done TED Talks on this also, you know, directly engaging hate head on. Mm-hmm. And the evidence actually shows that that's really the only way to change. You're almost guaranteed not to change their mind if you ban them. In fact, the opposite. I mean, you can't communicate with them if you ban them. So what I found compelling is what you said, uh, the quote that you gave from the nature study, which was that when you ban and when you uh, block a lot of things, then you create these dark pools. They go find someplace else where they're only communicating with themselves And I can totally see how that ensures that they become more deeply rooted in whatever worldview they have. It's reinforced by the reality bubble that they now go into. So I I get that. That makes some sense. And, you know, it does make it difficult because I think there are platforms who are abusing the phrase free speech right now. And they're sort of not... They're, they're not approaching it in a, a really productive way, mm-hmm. you know, which, which is why you sort of see a divide politically with free speech enthusiasts. You know, you have digital rights organizations like EFF and um, ACLU and, you know, th- these types of organizations who are obviously pro free speech. I mean, they've been defending some of the worst people mm-hmm. in history, but they, you know, they knew that that mattered. But at the same time, b- because th- they understand what Daryl understands but then there there are other platforms that just try to use it as like a marketing tool and mm-hmm. don't really want to be productive with it. I don't need to name names, but I think that people really just aren't familiar with the research around censorship. And so the gut reaction is, oh my gosh, that's horrible content. It, it, it just needs to go. And I do actually believe that platforms should be able to have their own policy. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's okay for some platforms to get rid of that, but they have to know that when they do that, it will go to other sites and they're not contributing to necessarily to making to, to the solution. And so for platforms that are willing to tackle the problem head on, I think that it's going to take time. It's not an easy job. It's actually a really hard job to deal with this and build all the filtering tools and engage with the volunteer organizations to actually engage. 
but you know that's where we stand and and we want to to help solve that problem and certainly for the big networks i think that they need to adjust their thinking around ship and let's compare data i mean 10 years from now let's see who has actually de-radicalized more people i'm happy to uh you know, do a podcast with me and Dorsey <laughs> okay. and, and, and 10 years from today, it's going on the calendar. One other thing I wanted to get to about minds.com and that was honestly, I'm not hundred percent sure. I totally understand what you were doing there, but what I saw in one of the releases that you had, it sounded almost a little bit like creating a network collection of blogs. That's what I kind of saw is sort of being able to put a pro site that had social features and was integrated into minds.com, but also had an independent existence. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, this is the stuff that I'm most excited about in terms of the creator economy. And so we've built the last year, we've nonstop been building out both fiat payment tools and crypto payment tools for creators so that we can have rev share programs with the creators who are helping drive the most traffic to mines. Mm -hmm. And so within, we we have two premium uh, products, Mines Plus and Mines Pro. In Mines Plus, everyone gets access to this, the Mines Plus feed of exclusive content, but can also post into it. Mm -hmm. And we're taking 25% of our revenue and proportionally sharing it with the creators who drive the most engagement to that premium feed. And with and set up your own custom domain and sort of design your channel to, you know, be more like your own website, but it's still powered by minds. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that just giving people more control, more monetization tools, you know, this is what, creators need. I, I saw the piece you did about the, the creator economy. It's just amazing how, how fast it's growing. Mm-hmm. Well, that is interesting. And honestly, in some ways, uh, a vision like that of connected websites with this connective social tissue between them sounds a little bit more like maybe some of the dreams we had of the web way back when, (laughs) somewhere in the 90s, when blogging started and it was the thing, not social networking. Very interesting. Well, what's happened is that these nasty third-party ads have become the norm. And, you know, a lot of bloggers and creators, and it's not their fault, to be honest, they've been bullied into it by, you know, Google and, and all the other, you know, Taboola and all these sort of nasty ad networks that are all proprietary. There's actually a really cool project that we've been talking to ethical ads mm-hmm. and no spying. It's more tech focused. You, you would actually be a, a good intro with them. But you know we have an internal ad network with the boost system. So when you boost with the tokens, we distribute that throughout the network. There's no surveillance. We're going to be bringing in like the ability to target at hashtags, but mm-hmm. you know, certainly not like bring people around in order to advertise them. And that does make it harder, a little bit mm-hmm. less accurate, but we, we really have to ask ourselves what world we want to live in. And if we want a privacy by default world where maybe users can opt in to receiving more relevant content, but it really has to be more consensual 
mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right now. And introducing serious rev share tools, I think that's really the future. Because if we have this huge subscription revenue stream and we can share that with the creators who are helping us drive that subscription revenue, you know, and we, we also allow creators to set up their own membership tiers, similar mm-hmm. to some of the other creator sites. But for those who don't, you know, that's not an easy thing to do, mm-hmm. to, to build up a whole membership base. Some people can do that and it's, it's worth doing for those who can, and everyone should really try. But if they can tap into our revenue stream, it's much more sort of immediate satisfaction. So we're really excited to launch that. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Bill, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your Saturday afternoon to uh, chat about these topics. They're pretty key. They're pretty critical. They're pretty topical and appreciate your perspective. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Hey, for everybody else, thank you for joining us on Tech First. My name is John Katsir. I appreciate you being along for the show. You'll be able to get a full transcript of this podcast in a couple days, maybe a week at johncoutsier.com. The story will come out at Forbes after that. And the full video is always available on my YouTube channel. Thanks for joining. Maybe minds.com too. Who knows? Uh, thanks for joining. Maybe share with a friend. Until next time, this is John Coutsier with Tech First.